How many of you have, uh, have read through or studied the book of Revelation? That's a lot. That's good. I ask because Revelation is one of those books, kind of like the Old Testament prophets, that people tend to avoid. Right? They tend to avoid it because it's seen as being difficult to understand, really. Right? It's full of, it's full of imagery and prophecy, things that tend to stretch the imagination and befuddle us as we read it. What's this dragon and the heads and the scrolls and, right? Uh, it can be a little bit of a challenge. In fact, it's been said that Revelation is like, to borrow a, a term coined by Winston Churchill, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Which is kind of fair, but not entirely fair. Revelation is definitely a book of prophecy, and it's definitely full of fantastic imagery and things that are a bit difficult to comprehend. But the overarching message of the book is actually pretty simple. The main idea of Revelation is simply this. Jesus saying, I'm coming soon. That's really what Revelation is about. I am coming soon. In fact, in chapter 1, he says this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. At the end of the book of Revelation, he says... Behold, I'm coming soon. And everything that transpires in between is really a depiction of what that is going to entail. It's a preparation for his people to understand how that will unfold to the extent that we can, but ultimately to know simply this. He is coming back. He's coming back. He's going to return to judge the world. He's going to return to conquer once and for all Satan. He's going to gather his beloved to himself, his redeemed people, and establish his everlasting kingdom on the earth. That's what Revelation is about. And the purpose of it being written for the churches is to prepare us for what is to come. Okay? Now, we're not going to study the whole book of Revelation, not now at this time, but what we're going to be simply doing is just going through chapters 2 and 3 Again, looking at the, the letters that Jesus is sending. So he's, he's, he's saying to John, I want you to take this book and write down everything that you see and take it to the seven churches in Asia. And he starts off in chapters 2 and 3 by writing specific letters to each of those churches. And I think they're all meant to read them all. And then the rest of the book is for all of them to be prepared for what is to come. We're just going to look at those letters for now. Uh, and I'll explain a little bit why in, in a minute. Uh, but I think it would be helpful, since we're not going through the whole book, to at least give you a little bit of a background on it, just, to, just to, as a, a way to kind of set your mind more at you know, what, what was going on, when was this written, who wrote it. So the whole title of this book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ to John. Right? Now, different Bibles will write that in different ways, but that's essentially the title, The Revelation of Jesus given to the Apostle John. It was authored by John based on a vision that he received from Jesus while exiled on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is a, is a little island off the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And we're told there in chapter 1 that he was there on account of the Word of God. I think he was exiled there probably in persecution because he was in these churches. Specifically, he was in Ephesus and probably out of persecution he was kicked out and sent into exile on this island. And here it was that Jesus gave him this vision to say, hey, you're in the midst of some persecution. Let me tell you about 
more of that. And again, I'm going to set it right. Let the churches know. There's two views on when the book was written. Two main views. Uh, The first view is that it was written sometime in the late 60s A.D., just before the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell, was sacked by the Romans in A.D. 70. That's one view. Uh, The other view being that it was written probably more like in the early 90s A.D. The first first view being under the the reign of Nero. The second one in the 90s being under the reign of Domitian. I think that is more likely. I think that's more likely. And, And the thing about Revelation is when you read it, uh, or when you when you listen to it being taught, and it's been taught, as Esteban mentioned, for 2,000 years, there's several interpretive uh, methods by which people have tried to understand the vision and apply the message of it. And, I, and I'm only going to bring this up because I think many of you have heard or been taught up in, in various uh, methods, in, in, in each of these ones that I'm about to describe. Uh, let me give you a little bit of, of uh, an overview of, of the different approaches there. And please, if you're taking notes, don't write this down, okay? Just listen to this. The first approach is one called a preterist approach, which basically views the events of Revelation as uh, having unfolded primarily in the first century. So these are the ones that would say that the book was probably written in the late 60s AD before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And what we're reading here is, is that already happened, that kind of all happened around that fall of Jerusalem. Those, those are preterists, and so uh, some people will, will read all of these events as, as they've already all happened. Uh, and then you've got another group of people called historicists who will see Revelation as offering sort of a historical outline of the past, present, and future, uh, sort of the course of church history. Uh, and so they might read these letters that we're about to read as being written to not just specific cities, but as to eras of church history. So Ephesus starts off with the early period of the church and then just unfolds up until the time when Jesus comes back. Uh, Some dispensational Christians hold that view, not all, but that's another way to read Revelation. The third way to read it is uh, a group called futurists who basically see all of the things that we're about to read as happening right before Jesus comes back. So all of these things are still yet in the future. And then there's another group called idealists who would say, well, Revelation is, don't worry so much about time, but be, be more concerned with just seeing it as symbolic of sort of the eternal struggle between good and evil. There's something there for the church in every age just to sort of see this symbolism, see spiritual truths uh, that apply to all of us. As I say that, again, some of you are probably going, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those. I fall into one of those camps. I, I want to tell you, I don't fall into any of those camps, I don't think. I, I kind of take a different view. Uh, and so as we teach this, you'll kind of get that, I think. I, I take a view that's, that's sometimes called an eclectic view, which is, in other words, to say, I think there's strength and weaknesses to all those different perspectives. And I don't necessarily seeing, see any of those as being strictly correct. I think we should view the book and read the book as it was written to its original recipients and understand that they existed and that there were things said specifically to them. But at the same time, recognize that there are future events here that are still awaiting fulfillment and that there are applications, there are spiritual applications for the church in every age. That includes our own age. 
And that's why we're only looking at the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 for now. I think we can pull out of these things truths that were written to specific churches in specific contexts and understand what Jesus was saying to them, but also know that those things were written for any church and every church, including this church. These seven churches were real churches. They existed when John wrote the letter. And as I said before, I think they were all meant to receive and read the letters to each other. So let me pull up here a little map. This works. I'm not working here. Can you advance that for me? There we go. The reason why they're laid out the way that they are, the seven churches, is I believe because it was probably like a postal route. So if we see the island of Patmos, which is off the coast over here, those letters would have gone, the first city that they would have entered into would have been Ephesus, and then they would have been carried along kind of a natural route. Right? So each of those seven churches is represented in a fairly small cluster at the edge of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And like I said, I think they were all meant to read them because everything that's in the letters and what follows the letters was certainly for churches of, of all time, I think, in, in space and probably things that each of them were dealing with, uh, some specifically and, and probably all generally. Okay? So, that's it. That's the end of my little like uh, prep for the sermon series. Let's actually br- jump in here. Let, let's, let's again, let's look for application for Edgewater Baptist Church. Let's look for application for the broader church around us and follow that postal path. And we'll begin with the letter written to the church in Ephesus. Look at chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the main theme, if you can advance that slide again one more time, I'll put the title back up here for my message. The main theme of this letter to the church in Ephesus is simply this. Your doctrine is solid, but where's the love? That's the gist of what... Jesus is saying to this church, and I think there's great application here for our church and for every church. There's a pattern that will show up in each of the seven letters. We just read one that, that 
carries this pattern perfectly, and most of them follow suit. They all begin with a glorious description of who's speaking, of Jesus. He says something about himself and identifies himself as the one who's addressing his people. And then there's some kind of commendation. This is something that I know about you. This is something that you're doing well. There's a commendation in each of the letters to the churches. And for five of the seven churches, then that commendation is followed by a concern. Uh, an accusation, really, of sin that's happening within the midst of the church. There's, there's a warning that comes with that accusation and that concern. And then after an exhortation or an encouragement, Jesus simply says to them, listen to what I'm saying to you. And then promises them a blessing for those who overcome. An eternal blessing. So you get the idea that for Jesus, for the most part, He's got something positive to say about each of the churches, but also, for most of them, something negative. He's rebuking them for something. But again, it's about preparing them, right? It's about preparing. The whole point of this, of this book is to prepare the churches for what is to come, to prepare them for the return of the Lord. So in that preparation, there's a desire there for Jesus to purify them. So that when He comes... He'll find them faithful. So prepare yourselves for that too. Each week, there'll be something that Jesus commends that I think we can probably be commended for ourselves and then something that He'll warn against and a concern that we probably need to pay attention to as well. We're going to hear some rebuke. And if you're prepared for that, then you're going to love, as I love, the way that Jesus begins here. When you're, when you gotta say something hard and difficult to somebody, what's the best way to do that? What's the most loving way to do that? Isn't it usually to start off with affirming something about your love for them before you bring down the hammer? That's what Jesus does here. Look at verse one again. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. This is, again, a glorious description of who's speaking. This is Jesus, the one who holds the seven stars and the golden lampstands. But he says something beautiful about that. He says, I hold them in my right hand and I walk among them. Remember the end of chapter 1, which Esteban just read. The description, the explanation of the vision in verse 20. What are these Stars and lampstands. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what Jesus is saying firstly to His churches is this. I love this. He's saying, I hold you in my right hand. There's some difficult things that you're about to read. Some of them are difficult because they're a rebuke to you. But know this, I hold you in my hand. In other words, I've got you in my grip, church. For the church, and by extension, every believer, that includes you and me, there is tremendous comfort even in our weakness even in our failure in knowing that our Savior holds us firmly within His almighty grasp. And the significant comfort of that statement is derived from the nature of the one who says it. 
That's why I wanted chapter 1 to be, to be read. I mean, that, that, is the, that is the necessary preparation for what we're reading here to the churches. Look back at what chapter 1 tells us about the nature and the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So Jesus here is standing here in the midst of the churches, clothed with a long robe, and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a a flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, if, if you can sort of get your mind's eye to wrap around this image, can you imagine the, the, the power and the awesomeness and the glory of this one whom John is seeing? I hear a voice, I turn around, and it's white hair, flaming eyes, sword out of the mouth. What would you do? Well, I think you'd do what he did in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I love what he says also in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come. I am the Almighty. So if the Almighty is standing before you, And he says to you, I've got you in my grip. There's tremendous comfort. It's as if he's saying, church, attached to this letter is a description of what is to come. And what is to come is the day of the Lord. It's at hand. And I, as the resurrected Jesus in all my glory and in my might, I'm coming to judge the world. And when I come, I'm going to, I'm going to find that the forces of evil are going to rise up against me and against you. They're going to try to destroy the church and wreak havoc on the earth. But my righteousness, my righteous wrath will overcome them and I will wipe the wicked from the face of the earth. It's going to be great. It's going to be terrible. Those of you who were with us just a few months ago when we were going through 1 Thessalonians, we we read through for several weeks the descriptions of the day of the Lord and, and they're all scary. And he says, I'm preparing you for that day. And in my preparation, I have something to correct in you. There's sin in the camp, church. And if nothing wrong or nothing wicked can stand in the presence of the righteous fury of the Son of God with eyes aflame and sword protruding from His mouth, How will you survive? How will you survive? Here's how. Because I'm holding you in my grip. I've got you. You are safely and securely within the firm grasp of the Almighty. And I don't just have you in my grip. I walk among you. That's what he says there at the end of verse 1. I walk among you. The churches. I'm in your midst, 
says the risen Lord. You're my church. And as I promised you, I will be with you even until the end of the age. I'm not going anywhere. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you. Here's the point. Jesus is powerful over and present with His people. And I think some of you came here this morning needing mainly to hear that. Jesus is powerful over and present with His people. Are you enduring persecution? Are you enduring tribulation or trial? Are you suffering? Are you without hope? Are you fearing the discipline of the Lord? He's over you and with you. He's got you in His grip. All of us need to hear that. And as a loving Father, the Lord wants us to hear it first. Before He has anything else to say to us, before He tells us what His observant eye has seen and evaluated in the church, I'm with you. And then He begins to tell them what He has seen and evaluated in them. And there's something about the church in Ephesus that greatly pleases the Lord. Look again at verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. And I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So the first thing he wants us to know is he's over and with his people. The second thing he wants the church in Ephesus to know is, I'm commending you for contending for truth. Your, do your doctrine is solid. And, and you fought the good fight. You continue to fight the good fight in this. This is a good thing. And it's, it's a good thing because he knows them and he knows their situation. Ephesus, of all of the cities and all the churches that he's writing to, Ephesus is in the most difficult and dangerous place. Ephesus is by far the biggest and the most influential city on this postal route of churches. Ephesus is probably the church that actually planted the other ones. It's, it's, it's likely the mother church for the rest of them. But Ephesus as a city itself is, is, a, is a, a big pagan outpost. I mean, this is where Diana worship prostitute, temple prostitutes, the, 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 the sexual immorality, the, the tremendous uh, pagan idol worship was going on. It was everywhere. And we read in the book of Acts when the church, when Paul and others came in to, to start the church, to preach the gospel in the church of Ephesus, there were riots that were taking place there because when people were coming to faith, it was disrupting that false worship in such a way that not only was it affecting the religious climate, but much of the economy of the city was built on supporting that false worship and it was disrupting the economy. And I mean, it was, it was, it was a tough place for them to be. And persecution was rampant. Again, I think that's probably why John was exiled. But not only that, but we get a clue from 1 Timothy. As Timothy was left in Ephesus after the church was planted, we get, a, we get a sense there that there was not only trouble outside, but a lot of trouble within. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. 
He says here, you've stood up against false teachers. You've tested them. What does that mean? Well, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says something similar. He says, what am, I, what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. But for such men, they're false apostles. They're deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. There, there are people who will creep into the churches, and this is true in, every, in any church, in every church, who look good on the outside. They look like godly people, but they're preaching a different doctrine. And Paul reveals it as being one straight from Satan. They're servants of Satan. They're disguised as light, but they're bringing wickedness. Verse 6 here in Revelation 2, he mentions a specific group of people. He says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We know a little bit about the work of the Nicolaitans. We know a little bit about what they were like. These, these were people who, who were, again, in a, in a very pluralistic society like Ephesus where there was all kinds of different false worship, pagan worship. They were trying to take Christianity and sort of just blend it in with the rest. They were, they were looking for ways to avoid, you know, the persecution and the, and the kind of gospel that would offend and just sort of make it a, a cultural Christianity. And Jesus says, I hate that. And he commends them for hating it too. And I'm convinced, as I look across the spectrum of evangelicalism in our day and age, that that probably describes most of what we see. Cultural Christianity. Or civil religion. And Jesus doesn't like it. And He says to this church, I'm glad that you don't either. And commends them for their, 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 their sticking to the sound doctrine of the Gospel that they'd received. And recognizing that in doing that, it requires work. It requires toil and, and endurance. It, it can make you tired. But he says, you haven't grown weary. Why can it make you tired? Because the assault on truth never stops. But Jesus says to them, I know this about you. And He commends them. So that's a good word. right? That's a good word for the churches. Jesus cares deeply about the soundness of the Gospel. He cares deeply about the churches maintaining sound doctrine. Not wavering to and fro. Not going into other kinds of messages that would, that would co-mingle the, the straight-up message of Jesus' death and resurrection. That we would have to somehow add to that to make it more palatable or believable. Jesus says, I hate that. And I want you to hate it too. And he commends the churches that do. And we could spend a lot of time talking about sound doctrine versus false doctrine. But I think, as I've been considering this, doctrinally sound churches, and I, I would say our church, although I, I can't claim that we're perfect in our doctrine, I think we're doctrinally sound. We care about doctrine here, right doctrine. We don't need to spend a lot of time talking about the benefits of sound doctrine. 
We, we sort of already champion that. What we need is to be reminded of and warned against the tendency to drift into a loveless faith. That's what Ephesus needed to be warned against as well. Verse 4. But I have this against you. Let that, just let that phrase sink in a little bit too. I have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. You've abandoned it. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent. Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's an interesting thing. Well, I'll come back to that, but that's an interesting thing for Jesus to say to the church that's got sound doctrine. I'll remove your lampstand. In other words, the warning here is that you'll cease, you'll cease to be a church. Churches that are, that are high on, on doctrine tend to think that the reason why they're still in existence as a church is because they've got right doctrine. And Jesus says, yeah, but without love, I'll pull it. Warren Wiersbe says, truth without love is brutality. Tim Keller says it a different way. He says, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. See, there's a difference between contending for sound doctrine and just simply becoming doctrine police. Right? There's a difference. On the one hand, your concern for sound doctrine is recognizing that it's, it, the truth of the gospel is what people need. That's, that's what saves people. That's what gives us life, right? That the reason why bad doctrine or, or unsound doctrine is so dangerous is because it, it hurts people. It distracts them from hearing the freeing, life-giving flow of the pure message of Christ's death and resurrection, right? But when we... Forget that, and it becomes more about just doctrine for doctrine's sake. We can become doctrine police. And then start, instead of looking to give life to others, start looking to judge them for not meeting the doctrinal standards that we're holding them to. And Paul calls that, and Jesus calls that, a different doctrine. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. See, there it is. Godliness is a means of gain. My, my, my right behavior, I'm adding to the gospel and its saving power. This is the means of gain. I will prove my worth and earn my salvation by my godliness. And then we begin to hold that standard against others and we're forced to basically measure ourselves against one another to know that we're doing okay, right? Which causes 
controversy and quarrel and envy and dissension and slander and suspicion and constant friction among whom Paul calls people who are depraved in mind. That is not right thinking. All the doctrine in the world without love is nothing. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, right? You guys, you guys are going all after all the spiritual gifts. You want, you want knowledge. You want all this stuff. But listen, without love, it's just a, it's just noise. It's just noise. Theology, which I love, is meant to lead to doxology, which is the praise of God. Theology that puffs up and leads to arrogance or pride is it's garbage. It's not right theology because right theology leads to doxology. It leads to the attitude of, of David in Psalm 119 when he says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous deeds. Your righteous laws. Your righteous decrees. In other words, I'm studying theology. I'm, I'm learning your word. But the, the purpose of that is, is not to puff me up. It's to, it's to get to, to a point where I, I, I praise you, God. If you're a doctrine hound, and I am, let's ask Jesus, what's the most important doctrine? Somebody asked him that one time, remember? A lawyer? Jesus? What's the most important command? How did he say? Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If, you, if, you're, if your theology doesn't drive you to love God and love people, then, then nothing else matters. All the other laws hang on that. And if they don't, then they're just legalistic, whitewashed garbage. You shall love the Lord your God. Here he says, you've, you've forgotten. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. He doesn't specify here what kind of love or to whom that love was, was, was to be given. Is this a love for God that he's talking about? Is this a love for, for each other that he's talking about here? He doesn't specify here. He just simply says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. And I think there's a reason for that. I don't think you can separate a love for God from a love for people. I don't think you can separate a love for people from a love for God. You can't love God rightly if you don't love His image. And you can't love people properly unless you love the one who made them and recognize that <laughs> like them or like you, we're all just recipients of His grace and love from the first place. We love because you first loved us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, John says in 1 John. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So Jesus is saying, look, I, I love your doctrine. I, I love that you're standing and contending for the, for the truth, but I wonder if your truth is, is lost a little bit of its truthfulness. 
Because where's the love? You had it in the beginning. So he says to them, there's three things I want you to do. And, 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 and lucky for us in English, they all start with the same letter. Remember, repent, and return. Right? Remember. You, you had it at the beginning. What, what was it about the beginning of your faith that drove you to, to love God and love others? Look back at chapter 1 again. Look at verse 5. The second half of it, it says, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When you first came to Christ, that was the precious truth that you believed. Jesus is the One who loves me and has freed me by the shedding of His blood. He took my sin. He took my penalty. He made me one of His own. He has established me as a child of God. Amen! And, and, and that, that simple knowledge of what I was and, and how I wasn't worthy or deserving of the love of God, but I was only deserving of His wrath, but that's been freed. It's been taken. I've been liberated by the love of God through Jesus. That compels love. Thank you, God. Do you remember that feeling when you, when you first realized your faith in Jesus Christ was sufficient to save you? Do you remember? And do you remember then how, how in that moment you, you recognize that I'm the worst sinner I know. I'm, I'm no better than anybody. I can turn to my brother and my sister next to me and, and, and I can want for them the same grace and mercy that I've received because only God can give this. I'm not worthy. Jesus is saying, remember that. Remember the Gospel. By the way, when you look at verse 5, that latter half of, latter half of verse 5, there's a lot of doctrines in that verse. Him who loves us has freed us from our sins by His blood, made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion. I see the doctrine of, of justification in there. I see the doctrine of sanctification in there. I see the doctrine of glorification in there. There's a lot of doctrine in there. But the point is love. It's the love of Christ that has accomplished these things. So remember. You know, I was, I was reading this week uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little booklet called Life Together. And he talks and he's talking about community, but, but the idea is the same. It's, the idea of community is certainly a love for God and a love for one another, right? It's, it's living together in that love. And he, and he talks about community and, and he talks about why we struggle as Christians and why we struggle as churches to, to, to live in that loving community with God and with one another. And he says it's simply this. It's because we've forgotten that this kind of, 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 of loving, uh, community, this, this love of God is a divine reality, not an ideal. In other words, you can't create this. You can't, 
you can't make it happen. You can't, you can't sort of like build structures that are gonna, that are gonna somehow compel us to love one another better. The reality is, he says, it's just simply a divine reality. God has loved you and called you together as a family. It's a reality. Walk in step with the reality of what God has done. And I love that picture. Because I think when we try to, when we try to create uh, on our own power, sort of this like love for one another, what, what we think of is like, we just gotta, we've gotta tamp down all the potential conflicts. And so what happens when we do that, think about this, is, is we end up ultimately being divisive. Because we separate ourselves from conflict means that we're gonna end up separating ourselves from people who have different political persuasions or different cultural uh, understandings or identities or, or, or even different, some different doctrinal views. Not so much primary ones, but secondary ones. And we think peace is the absence of conflict. So let's just holy huddle up into groups that are, we, we're all kind of like, we're all alike and we'll think to alike and we'll, we won't rub each other wrong. But peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace Biblical peace, gospel peace, is the presence of overcoming love. Where does love have opportunity to grow and bloom? In conflict. Right? That, that's, what, that's what makes family so unique. That's why I think we're called family so often in Scripture. Your family members aren't always the people you get along with the most or think alike with or whatever, right? Like there's... You've always got that, that, that sibling or that uncle or, or that, or your parents where there's just, there's plenty of opportunity living together. There's plenty of opportunity for conflict. And yet, there's some, there's nothing quite like familial love, is there? There's no bond stronger than the love of family. It's not because there's an absence of conflict. It's just because, because you're family, that's just a reality. You're forced then to overcome that conflict with love. And it makes your love stronger. And I think that's the idea here. You've forgotten that Jesus has made you a family. You've forgotten. Live in the reality, the divine reality of what you are. And love. And because you haven't loved, you need to repent. It's, it's sin. And you need to renew that love. How do you renew that love? It's, again, it's just remember the divine reality and walk in it. And if you don't, again, the warning is, I'll remove the lampstand. You, you won't continue to be a church. Wait, 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 Jesus, we're, we've got right doctrine. Yeah, but without love... But it's it's all the churches around us that have that have that have that have that have walked away from right doctrine. Those are the dying and dead churches. Yes, they are. But so are the ones who got their doctrine, make much to do of their doctrine, but don't love each other. And you will too. I'll take it away. You think they've missed the gospel because they don't have right doctrine. I'm telling you, you've missed the gospel if you don't love.
Now one little interesting side note is right after he says that in verse 6, he says to them, but this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans and I hate it too. It's, it's kind of interesting placement there. I think he's saying, don't get me wrong, doctrine still matters. But truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. Listen. Listen to what I have to say. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here we have the first promise to the conquerors, the overcomers. Church, hold fast to your doctrine. Love. And if you're a church like that, you're a real church. And, and what coming at the end of this book, you're about to read about a whole lot of events that are to yet to unfold and a lot of scary things and the day of judgment. But at the end of the book, there's a description of what's coming. My kingdom. The new heavens, the new earth. In the midst of the new city of Jerusalem is the tree of life. You, you'll be there. Because this is the mark of my people. I think it's a good word for us. I think it's a good word for us. It's easier, I think, it's easier, and as, as sort of Reformed churches, I think it's easier to get really good at holding fast to doctrine. It's harder to remember that that doctrine is supposed to lead to doxology and love. It's a good word. Father, we ask that You would help us to live it out. I thank You, Lord, for the love that You've shown to us, and I thank You for the, the, the many, many examples of love that I see around us all the time with Your people. But Lord, I, I think this is a good word for us because I know our tendencies. And I pray that You'd, you'd sustain us not only in, in holding fast to the Word of truth, but, but to never forget that that the Gospel always drives us to love. Make us a loving people. Make us a people that You'd come back and find faithful in this regard. Lord, we, we know that because of Your love for us, we will be with You in eternity. We will be in, in paradise. The tree of life is, is for all of us who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But Lord, we know also that the fruit of our lives bears out the reality of that salvation. So let us not be content to live either a doctrineless or a loveless life. Marry the two in us, Lord. Make us a people who reflect Your heart. Give us compassion. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.